It's good to see um, each and every one of you that I can see, and it's good to have those of you that I can't see that are joining us with uh, on the live stream. It's good to have you. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can take those out or get out your app and turn with me to the book of Acts. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of those few Bibles that's in front of you, and you will find the book of Acts. Um, we're going to be in the first and second chapter, and you can find the book of Acts uh, on page 909. And so we start a new section in the storyline of the Bible um, series, kind of a, a, a new era, if you would, um, opening up. It's um, the day of Pentecost is what's happening in Acts, the first and second chapter. And on the day of Pentecost, two things are occurring that are monumental things um, to happen in, within, uh, within the storyline series. The two things are the birth of the, is, I'm sorry, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And so actually we're gonna take, um, we're gonna take this, this chapter, Acts chapter two, we're gonna look at it over two weeks. And so today I wanna focus in on, um, on the coming of the Holy Spirit and next week, we're gonna look at the birth of the church. And so it's the Holy Spirit's coming that gives birth to the church and the church happening. And we pick this up in Acts chapter two, but first let's look at the Spirit as he comes. And so Acts chapter one, we'll start in verse number four. Luke records for us and says this, and while staying with them, he, that's Jesus, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. So he's talking to the disciples here but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And so they're still thinking physical. They're not thinking about the kingdom of God. They're thinking about the kingdom of Israel. They're thinking political. Jesus is like, no, I don't have anything to do with that right now. That's to come when I establish my kingdom. But this is what he said. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But here's what I want you to know. Verse number eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, he went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And now flip over maybe just a page, maybe not even that in your Bibles. And let's look at Acts chapter two. We're actually just gonna look at like the first 11 verses. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each, was, each one was hearing them in his own native language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, 
Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And who is it that we hear each, and how is it, I'm sorry, that we hear each uh, of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Let's pray. Gosh, Lord, that's what I want to do today. I want to proclaim in the tongue that you have given to us in the English language plainly and clearly the mighty works that you have wrought, that you have wrought in sending your son, Jesus, and in the, and in the mighty work that you, are, that you are bringing about in the sending of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may our, as we're gonna talk about today, may our sails be filled by your spirit and move us and carry us forward into our own sanctification and growth, Lord. Jesus, we, as we see here, the birth of the church, this is by the preaching of the gospel that men and women will be drawn to you, Jesus, would become saved. And so, Jesus, for any who may be listening in this room or on the internet, maybe today or maybe someday in the future, as they hear your word, Lord, we believe that your word is eternal. Grass fades, flowers fall but your word, it stands for eternity. And so Jesus, use your word and the preaching of your word to save the lost and to sanctify the saints. That when we, that when we leave this place, may we, may we say that it was good for us to be together making much of you, Jesus. Glorify yourself. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this is um, really the final chapter I mean, it's the final chapter of the storyline of the Bible. So not only is it the final chapter in our sermon series, and it is the final section. I mean, we've got, I think, maybe six or seven more sermons left, and then we'll wrap up the entire storyline that we began in the 1st of January. But not only is it the final chapter for, for us, but it's the final chapter in the Bible. I mean, it starts here now on Acts chapter one, and it will carry all the way through to Revelation, the 22nd chapter. This is it. This is where we are today. This is where you and I are living. We are living in a post-resurrection, post-ascension, post-Pentecost world filled by the age of the church where you and I get to be Jesus's church that he birthed here um, in Acts the chapter two. So this is where we live. And the next phase, the next, the next chapter, the next thing to happen is for Jesus to come back Come, Lord Jesus, come and right all of the wrongs and establish his forever kingdom and, and begin a new heaven and a new earth. This is the final chapter of this very creation that was begun all the way back, however many we could say thousands of years ago, even as we see it in the scriptures in Genesis, the first chapter. And what is occurring on the day of Pentecost is the sending and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in order to produce the birth of the church. That what you see happening on the day of Pentecost is more about prophetic promises being fulfilled than it is about personal experiences. 
People oftentimes will talk about Pentecost as if it is a personal experience. They will talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as if, as if it is a personal experience. But what's happening here is we see a prophetic promise being fulfilled. The prophecy given to Joel, the prophecy even spoken of John the Baptist of Jesus and the words that even Jesus declared of himself. Jesus said that he was gonna build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And what we see here is we see Jesus beginning to build his church to collect the saints. In a similar way that the gospels begin, they begin with Jesus coming to this world. Jesus comes into the, this sinful world and what we see in Acts in the day and in the season of the church, what we see happening here is we see the Holy Spirit coming and the Holy Spirit is coming into the hearts of sinful people in order to make them part of Jesus's church. What happens in Acts chapter two is not the birth of the Holy Spirit. It's not where the Holy Spirit originates. The Holy Spirit, like the Father, like the Son, has existed in eternity past. There's never been a day or a time when the Holy Spirit has not existed. He's always existed. In fact, if we could have maybe just jog our memories back into our Old Testament readings, what we see all throughout the Old Testament is we see the Holy Spirit showing up. In various times, in various places, the Spirit comes. In Genesis chapter one, it says that the spirit is hovering over the waters in creation. It says that the spirit was with Moses throughout the Exodus. The spirit came upon men like Samson, giving them unique spiritual gifts, such as uh, in Samson's case, it gave him unusual strength and power. Like me, I have that. Um, and the spirit was with David throughout his life. The spirit was with the prophets enabling them to prophesy. Peter says in 2 Peter um, chapter one, for no prophecy was ever given by the will of men, but men, and this is how he describes it, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we notice all in the Old Testament, it's with people, it's upon people, it's over the creation. But what we see happening with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what sets us apart is now the Holy Spirit is going to be in God's people. His spirit will be in the church, filling the church. And again, we talk about a church, we're talking about a people, and that is the mark. That's the difference. It's not an accident, as we would say, that the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. But in fact, the, the celebration and the festival of Pentecost is pointing forward to this very event, this very thing happening. Pentecost is a Jewish feast or a festival there's a total of about seven feasts or festivals. Like we could have said, hey, guess a number. You would have probably said three, seven, four, or four, or three, seven, or 40, and you would have been right. And then the answer is seven. There's seven Jewish feasts. There's three major ones. The first one is Passover. It's commemorating the Passover in Exodus. And then 50 days later is Pentecost. So if you put it on a calendar, you got Passover happening. 50 days later is Pentecost. And Pentecost is a celebration of a couple of things. The first thing it's a celebration of is it is, a, is it is a celebration of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. Now, don't think when you think of this time, don't think about fall. It's not fall. It's actually um, mid to early summer. That's when the first fruits of the wheat harvest would come in. The farmers in the, in the room, think about the first time you cut hay. When is it? It's not now, right? No, this is the end of the harvest, right? Things are dying now. It's even in the beginning, the first cuts. That's kind of what's happening in Pentecost. It's the first fruits of the grains coming into the fields. That's what Pentecost is. It's a celebration of this. It's giving thanks to God for this, the arrival of the first fruits. First grains are coming in. 
It's also a celebration for the giving of the Torah, which is the law. So it's the, a celebration of, you know, the giving of the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, even the story that happens in Deuteronomy. It's the giving of the law. It's the birthday of the Torah they celebrate every year. And the reason why they get that is it was about 50 days is what they say. It's about 50 days from the Passover in Exodus all the way to the Ten Commandments being given at Sinai. That's a, there, there's 50 days there uh, in the life of the church, uh, in the life of Israel. And yet we know that all of these and all of this points forward to Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. Passover, as we discussed it back, I think Easter and Good Friday and Easter, we talked about Passover. Passover, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Passover is, is picturing that. It's prefiguring what Jesus is going to do on the cross, that Jesus will be crucified during the time of Passover. That's not accidental. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the sacrifice to assuage the wrath and the judgment of God, the application of Jesus's blood upon our hearts and our lives. It's what causes God's wrath, God's judgment to pass over us. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter five that Christ is our Passover. 50 days later, after Jesus's crucifixion, 50 days later, um, you have Pentecost. Jesus spends about 40 days with his disciples and then there's about a 10-day period after his ascension between Acts chapter one and Acts chapter two is probably approximately about, about 10 days. Jesus tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem and to wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. So they're waiting for 10 days. And then on the day of Pentecost, we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit for the first fruits of the harvest. It's the first fruits of the harvest is what's happening in Acts chapter two. The harvest is the collection, the salvation of the church. And that's what's happening here. You have the first believers. You have these 120 believers that are in the upper room. And then you have, after Peter preaches, you have 3,000 that will be saved after Peter's sermon. That's what's occurring here. That's the first fruits. Those 3,120 are the first fruits that are, will be harvested on the day of Pentecost, prefiguring and picturing future harvests that will happen all the way forward to even this day if someone was to be saved. It's the day of Pentecost. We're still celebrating even that. But also remember that it's a celebration of the giving of the law. And now they're entering into a new era. John says in John 1, 17, that the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, it's a celebration of the reality of even that it's the spirit bringing and making Jesus's grace and Jesus's truth in his salvation in the gospel that we preach and the gospel that Peter will preach even on that day. It's him, the spirit, making that a reality. Now let's look at the text. It's a lot of narrative, but it's important narrative and we'll break some of it down and we'll describe it. But first, let me just say this. Your salvation does not produce the Holy Spirit. but the Holy Spirit produces your salvation. Your salvation is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in you. Don't get that mixed up. Don't flip-flop that. Now, there are some well-meaning folks that would teach that the Holy Spirit comes as the second blessing. The first blessing is the blessing you receive 
from Jesus, which is salvation. And the second blessing that comes from the Spirit is the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But really, I don't think that that's exactly biblical. What I believe that the Bible teaches is, is there is one blessing. It is the blessing of Jesus. It's what he does in the gospel. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies that into your heart and applies that into your life and makes that a reality in your heart and in your life. The primary work and function of the Holy Spirit throughout the New Testament especially is to apply all that Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. He's making that a daily reality into your heart and into your life. Christ has accomplished it and the Spirit is applying that into your heart and into your life. The Spirit deals with the application of the redemption that Christ has achieved by the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is what the Spirit does. Christ has achieved it. Christ has acquired it. And now it's the Spirit that is applying that into your heart, making that a reality, making it a reality into your life. Luke writes and says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I'm in Acts chapter two, verse one. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You go, holy cow, what's happening here? Well, let's break it down. Number one, notice that the church was together. What a beautiful thing. Notice that they were together. Where are they exactly? Hey, we don't know. They're in Jerusalem. Jesus told them to remain in Jerusalem. Possibly they're in the, the upper room, the same upper room tradition kind of leans that way that they're in the same upper room that Jesus told them to acquire before his death. They've been there 50 plus days now. The same upper room where Jesus gave the upper room discourse at the end of the book of John. The same room where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. The same room where Jesus uh, um, led the first Lord's Supper with his disciples and they're still kind of holed up in that upper room waiting there. It says there's about 120 of them as they kind of come together. Possibly that's where he is. That's not what's important, but what's most important, what happens next. Now notice they're not praying for, they're not asking, they're not, they're not any of those things. They're just being obedient to what Jesus has said. Jesus said, hey, go and wait on the Holy Spirit and then I'm gonna send, I'm gonna pour out, I'm gonna baptize you in the Holy Spirit. They're not praying for it. They're not stirring themselves up in their most holy faith. They're not doing any of those things. They're just together trying to figure all of this out. Jesus's disciples, we even saw last week as Jesus is given the great commission. There's some among them who believe and some doubt it. They're still in this room trying to figure things out. And then all of the sudden, they have this phenomenon occur. There's this audible, and then there's this, this visible thing that occurs. It's, it's audible is what Scripture says. It's the sound of rushing wind. Folks talk about whenever they, if they experience a tornado or a hurricane, and they talk about the wind, and they say the wind sounded like a freight train, and that's maybe what they're experiencing. They're hearing this sound blowing in. Now, nothing is said about anything actually blowing around. There's nothing described by that. It's just something that they hear. It's something that's audible. There's this audible noise of something that's blowing around. They don't feel anything. They just hear it, and then they see something. It's something that's visible, what they see is they see divided tongues of, as a fire appearing to them and then resting 
on each of them. You go, what the heck, right? I don't even know how you describe that. You see pictures of like a tongue. What's a, t- a tongue? Is uh, That'd be ugly to picture that. But it's a tongue of fire. So what, is it a little flame? We don't really know. Like the, the description is a little vague at best. But this much we can maybe ask ourselves is why does this occur? Why does the day of Pentecost happen as we know it? Why does the, the, the baptism of the Spirit come with any kind of physical demonstration to begin with? I think it's important, and it happens this way, to emphasize physically what is really happening spiritually. Remember when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan? We covered that. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan and the Spirit descends on Jesus, not as a tongue of fire, but like a dove. And the Scripture talks about that it rests upon Jesus. And now a similar thing is occurring to these disciples. The Holy Spirit has descended on them and is filling them, filling them in them. They're literally engulfed in the Holy Spirit. But as he descends on the disciples, there's this tongue, this tongue of fire that rests upon them. There's a wind that's happening around them. The very word wind is the same word in the Greek for the word spirit. It's, the word, it's, it's from the base work of pneuma. You think about pneumonia, when you get that, it affects your lungs. The same thing's happening here. It's the same word for breath, for wind, for spirit. So they hear this, whatever, right? As the spirit comes rushing in and then they see tongues of fire resting on the people. Why tongues of fire? Well, think about it. These disciples are gonna be the mouthpieces, the mouthpieces of God. They're gonna be God's spokespeople. In fact, that's what's going to happen next is they're going to begin to, we read it in the text, they're going to begin to testify of the mighty works of God. There's going to be a miracle that's going to take place, the miracle of tongues. Now, the miracle of tongues is, what the word tongues literally means here is the word means just languages, right? I was was joking back in my office and I said, I'm going to give a message in tongues this morning. Mayamo es endi, like that would be tongues, it reminds me of Bo Craycraft had a, had a guy that he took, uh, for those of you that may not know it, Bo has served um, on the board and in various roles in a, in a mission in Honduras, a Sparrow Mission. And Bo one time took a guy, they asked a guy, a friend from church said, hey, we'd love for you to go um, with us to Honduras. And this guy said, hey, I'd love to go. And he, he fundraised and got the money. And they said, hey, when you go, this is what we want you to do. Would you just share your testimony to a, a group of basically like school children is what it was. We share your testimony? And this guy goes, I don't know that I could do that. And I'm like, brother, everybody's got a testimony. Just share your testimony. He's like, okay, I'll give it a try. The night before he gets ready to share his testimony, he goes, hey guys, I need to practice this thing. Do you guys care to listen to it and help me? And they're like, sure, no problem. And the guy gets up and he literally goes, mi amo es. And they're like, hold on, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, do you speak Spanish? And he was like, no, I don't speak Spanish. And they're like, did you try to memorize your testimony in Spanish? And he's like, yeah, that's what I thought you asked me to do. No, you can give it in English. We've got interpreters that will interpret. Like this guy was wishing for a day of Pentecost experience in reality. Like, man, you know, may the, may the gift of tongues be upon us so these Spanish people can really understand me. But what we see here is a miracle. A miracle takes place. Now notice, look, the miracle is the miracle of tongues, but I want you to notice that this is not a heavenly language or an unknown language. In fact, it's the opposite. The opposite is happening here. They're speaking in known languages, but it's just unknown to them. That's what they're marveling at. That's what's happening. That's why they're bewildered. Look at verse uh, in Acts chapter two, um, verse six. And at the sound, the multitude came together 
And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and they were astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that we hear? That's really, I think the miracle is in the hearing. Not even necessarily in the speaking, but it's in the hearing. How is it that each one of us hear? Each one of us in our own native language. Now listen, the speaking of tongues that's happening here in Acts, the second chapter, has more to do with the birth of the church than a personal experience in the Holy Spirit. Tongues isn't the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it's the evidence of the birth of the church. The birth of the church that is for the nations. This is the miracle. It's God's declaration that salvation has come for all people. It's why when Peter stands up to preach, Peter preaches out of Joel, the second chapter, which with which uh, God declares through the prophet Joel that salvation and the spirit is going to come to all people, to everyone who's going to be saved. Men, women, slaves, master, everybody will receive the spirit. All who believe is what the point is. It's exactly what Jesus has promised in Acts chapter one. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Three times in the book of Acts, tongues is mentioned as a similar deal. Three different times with the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit, tongues is mentioned. It's mentioned here in Acts chapter two when the gospel is preached in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the region of Judea. And as Peter preaches, it's accompanied by this this miracle, the miracle of tongues. It will come again in Acts chapter 10 when Peter preaches to a man by the name of Cornelius in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea is in the region of Samaria. It will occur again in Acts 19 when Paul preaches in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is in Asia. It's way over there. It was to them the very ends of the earth. And so what we see is we see tongues accompanying the preaching and the proclamation of the gospel and the and the harvest as souls are saved and as they're gathered into the church, into all nations, various people groups are now being saved because of what Jesus has done and the work of the Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not something that you necessarily even feel. It's not an experience but it is a reality. The spirit is given to us to regenerate us, to make us alive to God. The baptism and the giving of the Holy Spirit is a sign of the new covenant that is to be had. It's a new covenant that makes us saved. It's a new covenant that Jesus talks about in John chapter three, when Jesus talks with a man by the name of Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus asks the question, how can I see the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is a smart man. He's a learned man. He's an educated man. He goes, hold on a minute. How can I, a grown man, enter back into my mom's womb and be born again? That makes no sense to me. And Jesus says, no, 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 Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and be born of the spirit. Being born of water is not a picture of baptism. Being born of water is being physically born. How how did you get here? Well, your mom's water broke and you were born. And that's what Jesus is referring to. But then there's a new birth that must come, a new baptism, if you would, to be had. And it's the baptism of the spirit. It's a new birth. 
and it works. It's being worked and being accomplished by the Holy Spirit. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what makes you new. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is why you have faith in Jesus to begin with. Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it's a gift. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that produces faith for you to believe in Jesus. It is the the baptism of the Holy Spirit that enables you to believe and confess and cry out for salvation. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that enables you, believer in the room, to love what you love and to hate what you hate, to love that which is good and clinging to it and to abhor and to hate that which is evil. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is why you were here. It's why you worship. It's why you obey. It's why you sing the songs that we just sung. It's why you listen intently, hopefully, to the preaching of the word week in and week out. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is why you desire to honor the Lord. It's why you want to read and study the Bible. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is why you love other believers. It's why you want to serve them and want to care for them. It's why you pray. It's why you pray personally, and it's why you pray for the lost and and you befriend unbelievers and you share the gospel with them. Why? It's because the Spirit is empowering you in the baptism, in the very immersion of the Holy Spirit. He's empowering you to be his witnesses. Now, how you doing on those things? I'll get a drink of water while you think about your life. How's that going in your life? You go, maybe I, ain't, maybe I ain't got this Holy Spirit after all. Maybe I do need a little bit of that. Where's that to be had? I understand that. But remember this, we don't do this perfectly. Remember Pentecost is the first fruits. It's the first fruits of salvation. It's the first fruits even of a future harvest, a greater, larger, more, right, bigger harvest that is to come. And in the same way, it's the Holy Spirit is the guarantee and the Holy Spirit is the, is the deposit of a, a purchase that's gonna be taken, um, taken place in the future. It's a, good faith, it's a good faith deposit, if you will. Those of you that made major purchases in your life and you're gonna put something on, on hold, right? Back in the day, we used to do layaway and you put some money down and you'd be like, hey, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna get this thing. The Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, even in regeneration, it's the beginning steps of that. It's the first fruits of sanctification, even in your life of a future harvest that is to come. Your sanctification is the, is the growth. And then there's gonna be a day when Jesus returns and you see him, that's the Feast of Trumpets. When Jesus like blasts and either Jesus comes back or Jesus takes you home by death in some way, you stand before him. And that will be the finality of the harvest of sanctification in your life when you're glorified to be like Jesus. But right now we're just living in the first fruits. The first fruits is, is just that. The first fruits is the salvation the future maturing and the more fruit that you're gonna produce in your life, that's sanctification. And then there'll be a final harvest day when you die and you're with Jesus or Jesus returns. Come Lord Jesus, we say it again. Here's what Jesus promises though. He promises that you will receive power. You will receive power. There will be an empowerment, a divine enablement that will come after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
There will be with the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is, there is a controlling power that is the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit takes absolute control of your life. Now, the New Testament talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in a couple of different ways. Here in Acts, we see it talking about it as a baptism, but later on in other places, especially in the, in the writings of Paul, Paul talks about it. Change, the language changes slightly, but he talks about it as a, a, a um, in other places. Paul talks about it like this in Galatians chapter five. He says, we are to walk by the spirit. Galatians 5, 16, that's a little different picture than baptism of the Holy Spirit. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He's literally saying he wants you to keep in step. Keep in step with the spirit. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That's a great text, is it not? Praise the Lord for that text, Romans chapter seven. That's a great explanation of my yesterday, right? It's a great, actually yesterday was a great day, right? I mean, this is a great day, unless you're a Tennessee fan. I mean, it's a great day. We don't have, we're Christians in here. We don't have, we don't let those kind of folks in, right? It's a great day. But it may be a good description of my day tomorrow. Why do I want to do the things that you want to do? But then there's a desire coming in from inside of me. But also notice the key that is giving there to defeat the desires of the flesh. But I say this, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he describes what those desires of the flesh, and we all say amen to them. Verse number 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're walking by the Spirit and you're led by the Spirit, then he says, you're not under the law anymore. So when a change taking place, you're not lawing your way into love. You're not lawing your way into obedience. Lawing your way is that you're just keeping a commandment. You're white knuckling it. That works for a little while, right? But then all of a sudden you get, you get tired of, white knuckling it. There's been an inward change. It's what Paul's saying. The spirit has regenerated you and made you new. You've now filled with new desires. There's a new disposition. That's what the new birth brings you. There's been a change, a new disposition. You're changed. So that's what he says in Ephesians 5. He, meant, he says it like this, to be filled with the spirit. You do not get drunk with wine for that would be debauchery. But he says, but be filled with the spirit. Literally what it means here is be being filled with the Spirit. It's a picture of just over and over and over again, you being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I wanna take this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I wanna take the things that Paul is saying. I think those are all synonyms. When Paul says that we are to walk by the Spirit, that we are to be led by the Spirit, that we are to be filled by the Spirit. I think those are all synonyms for the same spiritual activity that's to take place. A little bit different than the baptism, but let's put those two together and then we make two application points and then we'll, we'll wind her down, maybe. Number one, you will never lose the Holy Spirit because he is the down payment and deposit on the future inheritance of your salvation. Now, some of you may go like, you know your Bible and you know it well. You go, wait a minute, what about Psalm 51 when David prays, take not thy spirit from me. And I would just say this, man, you gotta be careful. 
You gotta be careful looking at a post, like, like making application points in the Old Testament. I'm not saying God changes, but I am saying salvation, salvation is real and it's here and we're under a new covenant, not the old covenant. So you always gotta be careful, even when you get into the gospels with the disciples, be careful about making applications post-Pentecost, I would even say post the resurrection of Christ, post-Pentecost about your own life. Here's the reality. You will never lose the Holy Spirit if you are in Christ. You will never lose the Holy Spirit if you are in Jesus, a believer in Christ. Now, again, I'm not saying if you've been baptized. I'm not saying if you've joined a church. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying if you are genuinely regenerate, genuinely saved, then you will never lose the Holy Spirit. That's praise the Lord. I'm losing stuff all the time. It's good to know that I can't lose something. I won't lose the Holy Ghost. Praise the Lord for that. Why? Because he is the down payment deposit on a future inheritance of your salvation. That's why you know this. Jesus don't come back and ask for his money back. I changed my my name. I mean, changed my mind. Not gonna buy that after, after all. He doesn't leave anything on the shelf in layaway. He comes and gets that which he has been deposited. In fact, first fruits is a picture of an engagement ring. It's a betrothal process. That's what's happened in salvation, in regeneration. When he first gave you the spirit, it was an engagement ring, a betrothal to Christ. He's purchased you by his blood. You are the bride of Christ. We'll talk about that next week. And he will come and get his bride. It's just that plain and simple. He's not gonna leave his bride and I forgot about you, sorry. No, your collection of the saints, collection of his church, and he's going to come and get you. So know this, you will never lose the Holy Spirit. There's gonna be a final harvest is gonna take place and you will be in, in that if you are saved, but you will experience varying degrees of the Spirit's control over you. And that's the difference. See, baptism isn't something that you do, but it's something that is done to you. It's an act of grace. And during the baptism, you are filled with the Spirit and it's evidenced in your repentance and your confession of Jesus as Lord. There are no commands anywhere in the New Testament for you to be baptized in the Spirit, but there are commands like the ones that we looked at to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. And what is being commanded here is for you to yield yourself to the Holy Spirit. And you go, well, how do I do that? Well, let me give you an illustration for it. It's an illustration, I'll keep all things honest. It's an illustration that I I stole from a British pastor by the name of Andrew Wilson. He preached at um, the Village Church in uh, Flower Mound, Texas, which is a church where Matt Chandler uh, preached. And so um, if you want to look that up, again, his name's Andrew Wilson. He's He's fantastic. He's simply a great gifted communicator. And he picks up on the idea. He uses illustrations, actually three home run illustrations that I will use for the next couple of years. I will only give him credit for them this one time. After that, as all good preachers say, we start off with saying like, you know, we, we, we tell them what we said. And then the next time we use the illustration, we say, I've heard it said. And then the third time we say, well, I always say, you know, so that's what, what happened. This time I'm telling you who it is. Next time I'll say, well, I've heard it said illustration, and then there will become a time when I'll say, you know what I always say? I always say it's just like, just like sailing. That's the picture. Be ye always being filled by the Spirit. 
And I want you to think for a minute, sailing. Now, again, to keep all things honest, I gotta tell you the truth. I've spent a lot of time on the water, um, in rivers, in ponds, and in lakes, but um, we never had enough money to afford a sailboat. Never been a sailboat, I don't think, a day in my life. So everything that I'm telling you, um, I've learned from other places about sailing. I, I know this, that's what I know about boating. I know about oaring. I know about running out of water. I mean, running out of gas. I know about running aground. I know about boat sinking. I know those kinds of things, but I don't know much about sailing. But let me just tell you a little bit about sailing. People ask about sailing. Is sailing something that you do or is it something that is done to you? Is sailing an action that you do or is it an experience that is done to you? Is sailing something that's active or is it something that is passive? And the answer is both. It's both of those things. See, you will never experience the thrill of sailing just by getting in a sailboat, right? You'll never experience what it feels like to be carried by the wind and going to a destination and going to place in a sailboat unless you put out, raise up, lift up, right? Whatever you do, your sail. So the first thing you have to do is you have to do something that is active, something that you must do. You have to put up your sail. And if, right? But yet if the wind doesn't fill your sail, even though your sail may be up, if the wind doesn't fill your, fill your sail, you won't, go to any, you won't go anywhere. So in order to successfully sail, you gotta do two things. Number one, you gotta put your sail up. Number two is you gotta have some wind. Now you can put your sail up, but you can't produce the wind. You gotta have a sail up in order to capture the wind, but it's the capturing of the wind. The more wind that you capture, the more that you sail, the more that you travel. And listen, baptism in the Holy Spirit, it grants us access to the Holy Spirit. But filling your sails is you yielding to the Spirit's control and to the Spirit's power. See, the sail in that analogy, the sail is the the spiritual disciplines. It's the grace given. It's, it's even like if we were to look at Ephesians chapter five, Paul gives them for us, um, in, gives some to us in a text. Now this isn't um, a complete list, but he gives us, some, he gives us a list in, in that text. Ephesians chapter five, starting in verse number um, 18, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then now look, verse 19, how do you be filled by the Spirit? Well, this is what he says, addressing one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. What he's telling you there is one of the ways that you're filled, one of the ways that you're filled by the Holy Spirit is when you sing. Singing is you lifting up your sail in order to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit to move you further in sanctification. That's the picture. You don't, if, you don't put your, if you don't put your sail up, you're not gonna catch any wind. But singing has a, 
a divine enablement in it. It is a grace given to the church that when we gather, and notice that singing to one another, I'm all for sing in the shower, sing. And again, we're talking about singing with spiritual truths. Again, he didn't say, hey, sing some, you know, prints here. He's saying, you know, string, you can sing MC Hammer as long as you sing, you got to pray just to make it today. I mean, that's spiritually true. But when you're singing, he he's gives you a description of what to sing. You're making melody in your heart. You're singing songs, spiritual songs, hymns, songs that we sing in here, songs that possibly you find on Caleb, but other places you may find them. It's when you sing those spiritual truths about Jesus, when you're singing about Jesus and to Jesus that you got your sail up and you might, just might, by God's grace, catch a little wind of the Holy Spirit that may send you on further down in sanctification may stir your affections, give you a stronger desire to walk in the spirit rather than to be walking the flesh. When you get up early in the morning and instead of watching ESPN or watching Fox News and get mad at the world or get mad at your sports team, instead you put all that stuff aside and you turn on a little Spotify, put on a little jam and start worshiping Jesus. Maybe just maybe in the day that might carry you to walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh, to want to live for Jesus and share about Jesus and glorify Jesus in your heart rather than like those other things. Now, again, I'm not saying all those things are bad. We're not legalistic. I'm just preaching pragmatism here. I'm just saying, try it. Just see how it works out in your own heart and your own life. And I am saying like the truth of it, what Paul says in text, it, it happens. There's also power when we come together to sing. Even through muffled mass, there's still a power that is to be had as we singing to one another. That's scary. I can't carry a tune in a bucket. But yet when we come together, we're singing. We're singing to one another. That was just that, the first one. He gives another one though. Here's another way. Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that thanksgiving, when we're actively thinking, like, what do I have to be thankful for in my life? You know what? I got my health. Praise the Lord. We're in the midst of a, of a global pandemic, and yet God has spared me. Praise the Lord for that. Good thanks for our, our kids. When we're, when we're, when we're pra- practically stirring up our hearts and thanksgiving, thinking about those things, that thanksgiving is putting your sails up giving thanks to Jesus for all that he's given and all that he's done, filling our hearts and filling our minds. It evokes thanksgiving. It reminds me of Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if, there's in, if, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's probably not gonna happen on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC. None of those things are probably going to come to your mind in those things. Just saying. Verse number 21, when we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, when we're honoring others, that's us putting up, putting our sails up. When we humble ourselves in Christian service to others, that's putting our sails up. That's why the gathering is so necessary to our sanctification. All of those things are happening here in this place as we meet and gather together. What's special about this place? I mean, this place is kind of special, but there's nothing spiritually significant about these four walls or 444 block walls that we have. There's nothing spiritually significant about this place, but there is something spiritually significant when we come together and practice these things. It's us, it's us lifting up our sails. You know, folks race sailboats. 
That's a pretty amazing thought because like with sailboats, I would think you just, with the wind, you get what you get, right? You can't produce more wind. It's, it is what it is. I mean, I understand horsepower a little bit, how you can create more combustion in the engine. I mean, that's kind of the world that my son and I are currently living in, how we can make more horsepower. And it's a lot of fun, but wind power is different. Horsepower you can create, but you can't really create more wind power, but you can harness more of the wind. You can learn how to use your sail better to harness more wind. And listen, that's what spiritual maturity is. When you look at people around you who are a little bit more spiritually mature, a little more godly, they got the same Holy Spirit you got, the same degree about it. They just learned to harness the wind a little better. When you think about the fruit of the Spirit, you look at your life and you go like, man, my life is just absent of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Like that isn't a natural disposition of any human being toward those things. When you see people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, the reality is, isn't just that they, are, they can command more fruit. It's just they, they just learn to harness the wind better. They're just, put, they're, they're just sinking, their soul, they're sinking their roots into more fertile soil more often, being watered by the Spirit, enjoying the sunshine of the Lord more often, and He's growing and producing all of that. So we come to a time of the Lord's Supper. We just remember even in this, it's the Spirit who applies all that Jesus has accomplished. That even in these things, there's nothing sacred necessarily about these things. What's sacred is, is that Jesus harnesses them and Jesus uses them. And it is Jesus who has accomplished it all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for Jesus who has accomplished eternal life for us. The fullness and the abundant of life that we can have here on this earth. Not a life of woe is me, not a life filled with anger, not a life that's filled with strife, not a life that's filled with all this anxiety, not a life like that, but we can have confident faith in you who keeps all of your promises, Jesus. Jesus, that's what I pray. You said that you'd come to give us life and the abundance of life. May we experience that, not just more of life, but an abundant life in knowing you. How in the midst of global pandemics and circumstances and all that we've got on, going on in our lives, how we can be confident in you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Thank you for that promise. Thank you that you give that to us. And Jesus, may we be, may we be active in lifting up our sails to you and letting the wind of your spirit fill them. Move us on down in sanctification, moving us further into holiness where we can glorify you better. It's for your fame that we pray this in your name. Amen.